Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to another episode of Caleb's Conversation Podcast. I am very honoured to have the one, the only, James Marshall. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Caleb. It is cut cut the music. I don't know if your music is still playing. Oh, it'll be cut by now, yeah. Cut it because I want to say a few things. Okay, one. go ahead. Stri- dive straight into <laughs> one, it. One, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Two, I think you should call this Caleb's Conversational Show. Okay. Not podcast because show to me seems more grand. Show and seems more grand. Because, okay. you know, this is a, a big thing. And yeah. <laughs> I think show is... is it's got the theatrical element of it as well. It does. So okay. I, hey, I'm just your marketing advisor, Ooh. but I would keep it as, I would change it, sorry, to Caleb's conversation. Okay. Show. I will jot that down into constructive criticism for but sure. But you do you. You do you. Yeah, so. yeah. I appreciate that. I'm very honored to have you on. No, it's uh, seriously, it's great to be here. Yeah. Um, uh, we'd be planning this for a while. It has been a hot minute. Yeah. Because like we discussed, uh, I, well, I discussed bringing you on couple months ago and uh one of the big things obviously james and i went to university together went to film school and uh we obviously have a lot in common we say uh we look at the film industry in similar ways and uh, you have a very unique perspective because you're one of the few people that's actually boom in the industry working in the hollywood system so that's why i'm very excited right, to I, talk to you let me just stop you there I, <laughs> I have worked on two feature films but in no way do i kind of look at myself as I don't know, industry professional, mm. I guess you could say. But so. you're making those baby steps and moving towards that direction. I right? am. I'm trying my best and seeing how it's going. But yeah. Mm. So again, I'm very eager to talk to you because I feel like you are one of those um, people that came from film school. You actually left film school um, to pursue this career. And that's, uh, we're going to be talking about all these different things. And I, yeah, again, I'm interested to hear because you were going to be writing and directing uh, a television pilot show, um, A Christmas Murder and the Wickedly Diabolical Proceedings at the Midstow. Some of you may remember the episode I had with Holly and Helena um, who were working on that production, but you were the original writer and director of that and you were going to be spearheading this project for the Griffith Graduate Slate. And then you had to step away last minute because you had this opportunity working on the upcoming Elvis film. So tell us a bit about that story and what it was like making that decision-making process of like, I need to step away from this project that is my baby and I've crafted and that I love in order to hopefully make that step towards the career that I hope that I can get one day. Yeah, well, it was kind of, um, yeah, you're right. It was... You know, I'd worked on this project for a long time. I think it was about a year um, that I'd worked on the script because I did it in script two. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I also developed it in that other, what was that other subject? Uh, PDD project development something. Yeah. Something like that. It was very helpful. Yeah. And I think it helped the script a lot. And it got to a stage where myself and my producer were really happy with the story and uh, got up to pitch in front of everyone and was very, very honored and very, uh, it was very humbling that we got picked and, uh, and we were really happy with what we had. Uh, went into POC, which was our proof of concept scene and um, really, really happy with the whole atmosphere that we created and uh, the cast I thought was, was great. A thank you to, uh, <laughs> thanks to Caleb, um, who was on as casting uh, supervisor. And um, yeah, we were at a stage, I was at a stage where I was really, really happy with the project. Um, and then I'd had though in the background, um, this sort of 
uh, potential job uh, to work on Elvis um, because I'd, I'd had an interview. I got a call out of the blue um, from one of the production coordinators who said, hey, we're, we're looking for an assistant uh, for Baz Luhrmann. Um, if you're inter- interested for an interview, and I so I think you have the wrong person because I am wildly, wildly unqualified for that role. He's being um, very humble, guys. No, I you know this would have been my first um, job on a proper feature. I'd done work on you know work experience on commercials and short film projects from you know by Screen Queensland, but nothing to this scale. So I was out of my depth, I thought. Um, but straight away went in to the interview completely flunked it it was really yeah well it wasn't necessarily a bad interview but i think because i was so excited and so wanting this position just to work on the film in general um yeah i was i just i did and Mm. i just i kind of knew straight away that they you know i wasn't their guy and which was okay and I'm, i'm glad in hindsight i'm glad that i didn't get um you know put forward for that role um, so then that was kind of sitting in the background. I told my producer, hey, I've had this interview. There might be a chance, but I doubt. Like, I doubt I'll ever get this position. The wonderful Carmen Chan, the producer of A Christmas Murder. Yeah, yeah that's right. And um, so I kind of forgot about that uh, interview. We went ahead, filmed our, our scene and, uh, you know, went away with a lot of, um, you know, I think criticism, <laughs> yeah, and which is what I liked and which is what I really wanted to have um i'm glad that people weren't too yeah i I felt like the teachers didn't really see the vision Mm. or or whatnot i think um what i think anyway is that they kind of wanted to play it safe in a way whereas i wanted to be really bold and loud and different um and for people not to kind of like it i was like hey this is i think this is good Mm. um and then yeah, we were headed straight into principal photography, and then I got a call um, from one of the uh, on-set PAs of Elvis. Said, "Hey, would you like to come in for an interview?" I said, "Absolutely." Um, and then about two days later, I got another call from uh, the props manufacturer coordinator, who said, "Hey, we're looking for a runner to start in two weeks. We like what we see. Uh, we're not really looking for too much experience, just more or less someone who." is passionate about the industry and will do a good job. And I said, hey, I think that's me. That's um, awesome. So yeah, and we had these sort of phone call um, interviews and a lot of back and forth between the coordinator and myself and got to a point where she said, you know, if you say yes, it's kind of your job. Um, so I, without any thought, immediately said yes and then thought, oh God, how do I, you know, <laughs> how am I going to, explain one. this to everyone yeah yeah and so i i feel like to an extent i didn't leave things as well as i could have and i think because it just happened so quickly you know two weeks i was um uh, you know working on christmas murder and planning poc i uh, sorry planning principal and then yeah two weeks later i was you know on the same set as tom hanks and Baz Luhrmann, and it was very weird for me <laughs> it was a very weird transition and it happened so quickly so I feel like maybe I didn't kind of tie things up as well as I could have, but I think who I, the person who I handed over the film, which was Helena, I think she did a really, really great job. I agree, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I feel like not, you know, not um, everyone didn't quite understand my vision that I had for it. I don't think I even understood the vision, but um, I definitely think it was toned back uh, to be a more sort of grounded 
um, film. And I think that's kind of, you know, to do with teachers' feedback and, and whatnot. Whereas, you know, I made a film, a short film in year two, which was Monroe. And I don't, I'm not necessarily very happy with that project. Um, I think the actors and the group was, was awesome. The experience making it was really, really awesome. But overall, looking back at the film, I'm not happy with it at all. And I, I kind of blame myself, obviously. I sort of blame the feedback that I got. And it turned out to sort of be, you know, I was directing somebody else's vision, AKA my supervisor. So yeah, and whereas I wanted a Christmas murder to just purely be my own thing. And, um, and as well, I think Carmen has as much credit as, as I guess, as much of a writing credit as I, I do. Um, you know, towards the end in third year, it was sort of Carmen and I that were going back and forth, refining the script and getting it to a point where we were really happy. And then to all of a sudden say, hey, bye, <laughs> see ya. Well, yeah, it was definitely, I can imagine putting myself in your shoes in that situation and it would have definitely been a, a difficult decision, but you made the right decision. And I felt like everyone who was involved in the project with you was on that same page of like, this is the right move that you need to do. It was on, obviously not ideal because we were two weeks out from shooting principal photography. So we had to get a new director. Um, Carmen was obviously, you know, scrounging around trying to get all these last minute details, getting ready for the shooting period. Yeah. So it wasn't ideal. Let's be, let's be real. But we all knew you were making the right decision and that you were coming from it from the right place. And, uh, you know, we obviously wish you all the best. And, and from the sounds of things, it's been working out really well. Um, and I am eager to hear your perspective on Elvis, but I just want to touch on something that you just spoke about before about trying to fulfill the vision of the teachers. And I feel like that's an interesting idea of like not only fulfilling the teachers' perspectives because they're marking these projects and, and giving like a, a grade to it so that they can mark it within a university system, but I also think it's reflective of how the studio system works within Hollywood is that these executive producers and all these, you know, people that don't involve themselves in the creative side of a project, how they'll sit down, review a project, and then give all these notes. And sometimes it's vastly different to what the director is trying to intend with the project and that's I right. feel like that's so detrimental in so many projects and you can really tell sometimes when you watch a movie and you'd be like you can feel this is just made by committee and that the producers have just got their you know their fingers in there and just like screwed around with it and sometimes that trust with the director who's spearheading this creative project um, I feel like there needs to be more of that I do understand the reasoning that they obviously try and make it better but a lot of times these people don't understand what they're talking about. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, with a teacher changing a student film, it's obviously a much smaller scale. But I think you're right. It's still the same kind of principle that applies to when you step onto the bigger features and even series or it could be anything. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, it happened on Elvis as well. I mean, um, Baz's first um script that he wrote the warner brothers said no to oh um, really okay. yeah because it was it was too big it was too glamorous it was too much money it was too many sets and it was just too much for yeah okay warner brothers but what we ended up shooting ended up being the first script so oh really <laughs> so i guess Interesting. he got his own way in the end which you know you don't say no to baz um but yeah i mean a most recent example with the director i like is is zach, um zach schneider with justice league mm -hmm. obviously you know um I don't know. Have you seen 
I did watch the starter cut, yeah. Yeah, and your thoughts? I didn't like it. Really? No. Wow. I, I It was very distinctly a Zack Snyder film, mm. and I felt like his vision was far more cohesive than the Warner Brothers crap that we got originally in theatres. Um, so I would have much preferred if they stuck with Zack Snyder and we got his version originally. However, in saying that, I there was just a lot in that movie that I was just like, like yeah. it didn't need to be four hours long to begin with. It was, it was just so much filler. <laughs> and yeah. it was definitely a, a film that was like, all right, let's give all this backstory to these characters that you've never met before and then bring them together. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that just made the film bloated and the pacing to me was just really off. Yeah, you're right. You're but right. did you enjoy it though? I did. Okay, because this is what I find interesting about the movie is that some people really liked it and some people didn't. And that, to me, I think is a testament to Zack Snyder as a filmmaker because he's a very polarizing person with regards to what the movies he makes because some people love them and some people hate them. Like I know Batman v Superman was yeah. panned by critics and a lot of fans didn't like it. That's right. Um, I now look back on VVS with, with rose-tinted glasses. I actually, you know, I quite enjoy it for I what it is. I thoroughly enjoyed it, yeah. Yeah, but Justice League was is a recent example of a movie that clearly has a... A, a made by committee Joss Whedon version and then we have the very distinct Zack Snyder version and now there's two versions of the Justice League that we can look at and be like that's an example of it working badly and yeah. depending on your thoughts on the Zack Snyder version that's an example of it looking really good Yeah. so I think it's it's interesting to see how um, the creative process can change so vast uh, so uh, yeah so vastly because there's opportunities like where you can get on set and get a story out there but there's also opportunities where that same story can get chopped up and changed really like crazily in the edit that's right yeah and you know going back to teachers changing Mm -hmm. your your film yeah i i was pretty disappointed with monroe because i'd planned it for a long time and i had these big visions of what i wanted it to be and very you know old school hollywood very glamorous and it ended up being I don't know what it was. It was. It wasn't. It wasn't me. And yeah, I didn't feel right with it. Um, so that's why I knew Christmas Murder. I thought I really want to make it my own thing. And yeah, we got we you know um, copped a lot of criticism for it being you know too too bold and the characters were too big and needs to be toned down a bit. And you know why have you got a miniature? you know hotel thing and it doesn't make sense with the real set that you've got and i was like well that's it's just meant to be yeah (laughs) you just have to go along with it it's not meant to make sense i mean already the story in itself is stupid (laughs) because it's you know it's meant to be this cliche you know murder mystery set at christmas time you know already it's kind of a cliche over the top premise and i thought we want to kind of you know reflect that with the characters being being bold and and the world that they're in being this kind of almost Tim Burton-esque kind of gothic and yeah I kind of always looked at it like a gothic kind of Christmas film Hmm. in a way well I feel like you know when you come to film school so many people want to have that onset experience and actually get to practice the art of filmmaking and film school in my opinion is the time where you need to be learning and making mistakes so that once you leave film school and actually make it into industry, that you don't make those same mistakes. So I feel like you going through that process of like, you know, trying to experiment and bring your voice to life, I feel was totally fine. And it's one of those things is like trying to rein back the right amount, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I feel like it's a tricky balance, especially when you're trying to give criticism and trying to help a an art form that is very much so subjective. I think that's the trickiest thing because 
Like, you know, everyone likes different things, you know. People, you know, gravitate towards different styles of genres and, and you know, some people like horror, some people don't, you know. So it's all those yeah. sort of things. It's like, well, it doesn't make sense to bring someone in who doesn't like horror to critique a horror film because it, they just, they're not, they're not going to sync up, if you know what I mean. That's right. So it's sometimes tricky in that respect as well. Yeah, that's right. And it's funny as well. You mentioned uni being a place where you can kind of make mistakes. And I think that's true and. I have some thoughts about uni, which, you know, we can maybe get into later. Um, but yeah, one thing I do appreciate it for is that it is a place where I think, you know, as a group, collectively, you can all make mistakes. And, you know, you can look back at it, like for Monroe, going back to Monroe, I can look back at that. And I don't necessarily, you know, look at it like, oh, God, I hate this film. But I look at it as a thing like, hey, you know, this is what I set out to do. This is what we got. And this is how I can learn from it. Whereas, you know, you get into the to the real world, the real industry, you know, if you make mistakes, you will get fired. <laughs> yeah, That's, pretty much. Whereas if you make mistakes here, it's like, you know, the teachers just say, hey, I wouldn't have done this. Maybe you should do that. And you might get a few friends that hate you for two weeks or whatever. But yeah, the real world, you will get fired if yep. you make enough mistakes anyway. So yeah, I totally understand. Now you've just teased me. I, I, I want to hear these things that you have to say about uni now. No. <laughs> Please do share. Well, it's it's interesting because I know we had that conversation about your first podcast. And um, I was thinking back to it, you know, when COVID did hit, I feel like the way that they handled it, I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't happy with it. And I did not enjoy third year for the time that I was in it anyway. Um, I didn't really enjoy it. and But in saying that, I don't know how they could have done it differently yeah it's it's hard because as it was going through i was also in that same boat of i was not in agreement with a lot of the decisions they made because when covid first started the reality was no one knew what the fuck was going on everyone yeah. was in chaos and everyone was like all right is this something that we need to be worried about is this not and it actually wasn't until um i think tom hanks got covid when he came down to like the gold coast or whatnot that's right that people were like oh shit tom hanks has covid and people started freaking out yeah and anyway so we all know the timeline and the story behind covid but obviously the film school got shut down as a result and was shut down for a couple of months and i guess my perspective on it was because i was uh, in charge of the whole casting process for the graduate slate as well as casting a christmas murder specifically so as someone who was deeply involved in the acquisition of actors and bringing them on board for these projects it was tricky because we had to abandon the casting process for a couple months and then it restarted super last minute and we had to basically conduct uh, online auditions where people, or <laughs> I right, should say sorry. actors, <laughs> yeah. um, submitted self-tapes of a scene that we emailed to them and they performed the scene and then you know, send it back as a video to us. Which I, I don't know if you liked, but I quite liked it. Because I did as well, but it's, it's one of those things where you have to rely on the actor's interpretation of the script and you yeah. can't give direction on the spot. So you kind of only get one version and that's about it. Unless you're working yeah. with an actor who does... Um, a really good multiple versions but most actors just did one and done so yeah it saves the awkwardness of being in person to say that they're trash but not you know yeah <laughs> not well, that, that is true i'll no, say it does no offense actors <laughs> yeah it's true though like sometimes you just get a, a video and it's just like sorry yeah that's not the right one just you got to move on to the next one yeah. and that's one of the hardest things about the casting process and this was something i think i might have said to you or, or some other people around the casting process whilst we were going through it is that you have to be cutthroat like it's you know obviously you want to be nice and we're both very pleasant people and we have you know 
nice personalities but the reality is you know especially when you're trying to find the right person for a role sometimes you have to be like sorry you're not the right person and then move on to the next one but then when you do find that right person it just feels so much more gratifying because you're like that's the person that we can trust to bring this character that we've created for the um, from a script yeah. and bring him to life on the screen. So that sort of process I found really re- rewarding, and I really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, it was it was an interesting process because then we got to that stage where yeah we were conducting self tapes, and then we got the go ahead last minute again to conduct in person auditions. And I am of the opinion that I think chemistry tests are a huge part of the casting process where you bring in your shortlisted actors that you think might be best. That's right. And then um, bring them into a room and try them all out together and, and you know, experiment the scenes and, and see which actors work best together and which ones you think would be um, great to see on screen together. Anyway, so we got the opportunity to do that and I was very grateful for it. And I feel like um, even though you weren't there for principal, um, you had the experience on POC, which we heard some stories about with regards to our actors not necessarily um, being on the same page. So that was a good opportunity of being like, okay, now let's make sure that we get the right actor for principal. And from what I heard from Helena, she was very impressed and very grateful for the chemistry that um, Candice and and Paula had on screen. And I feel like that's so important because if your actor's getting along, it just makes it even more believable on screen. So Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think if our, you know, when I was on, on board, our actors kind of had different viewpoints and priorities and whatnot. Um, But I think that worked well because the characters weren't necessarily meant to like each other. I think if they didn't like each other outside, that was great for me. And I don't really care about the awkwardness of, you know, oh, they don't like each other. Whereas I think maybe um, moving into principle, some people felt more comfortable that they liked each other, which is fair enough. But for me, I don't care about that. (laughs) I, you know, I stuck to my guns and I, you know, the reason why I casted particular people is because that's who I felt at the time were the best people. We were on the same page as well. It, yeah. They, that, the, yeah, the original two choices were, were the right ones in the moment. For sure, yeah, yeah. Um, now, the next thing that I want to jump on with you is that you said that um, you didn't like the way that they handled film school, and I just want to add on to that again, is that because um, I was of the opinion that I felt like we should have just delayed everything until COVID was dealt with, but... Again, looking back in hindsight, that was probably um, not the right call to be made because obviously we're still dealing with COVID now. Because I considered um, deferring for a year and then just coming back the next year afterwards. And I decided against that because I didn't want to abandon this great group of people that I had come to to meet and, and work with. Um, so I didn't want to abandon that and just and then miss out on that experience of grad slate and then come back the next year and do it with a bunch of new people. Um, so I didn't want to do that. And, so I, and I stuck doing it out. with a bunch of new people in the role that you probably wouldn't want mm. because you know yeah the tricky thing is if you did defer you know you might not get that same casting exactly position yeah. that you wanted. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's it was an interesting process and I feel like. Obviously, COVID was one of those situations where it really left everyone so um, like second guessing themselves and the decision making process. And yeah, uh, is there any more anything more that you wanted to expand on with regards to the way the film school handled it? Yeah, I mean, not really, um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, it wasn't in this. Yeah. They were in a shitty situation. Let's be fair. Yeah, and it wasn't in their you know schedule of you know all right, well we've got screen distribution here, we've got um, grad slate screenings here. Oh, and we've got COVID pandemic here. Yeah. You know, it was just, I mean, for everyone, no one knew how to deal with it. And I think they did it in the best way that they could have. 
did I like how they, you know, did I like what was done? No. And I think as well, it was just because when you were in first year, you know, everyone, you know, third year grad film, grad film was like the big thing. Mm. Everyone's working towards, oh my God, it's so exciting. And to finally be in that position, thinking like, yes, we've made it. We're making a film, you know, we're all wanting to make. And then for COVID just to say, yeah, actually, we, got, we got royally fucked for sure. Yeah. And I think it was just disappointing to end the year. You know, I mean, I didn't really end the year with grad film, but, you know, to go into that year, you know, ending it that ending way. Ending on a kind of a low. Yeah. And I mean, I heard that the screenings weren't as good as they could have been. You know, not many people went. I don't know. I wasn't really there. Um, for, for the official Griffith one, um, it was pretty, you know, students and, and faculty turned up. Yeah. It was a pretty decent turnout. But for the um, friends, family and cast screening, um, that was a stacked theatre. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah that, well, was, that, that was awesome because um, just jumping onto that, so that was a fascinating experience, especially for watching A Christmas Murder because when you watch a project that you're so heavily involved in and you know the ins and outs of it and you know how a shot was conceived and you know what the actor was doing here and what the director's intending here, when you're so involved in the process, you're like, all right, I understand what's going on. But then when you show it to an audience who has no idea what to expect, no idea what's coming, yeah. and they're just watching it cold, that is a fascinating experience because I remember when A Christmas Murder ended because it ends on a cliffhanger and it's like to be continued at the end. The whole theatre erupted and was like, oh, no. Really? Really? It was insane. And, and that's the experience that we all wanted, right? Yeah. And to have that was just like so gratifying because it was like, Clearly, everyone was so invested in the story and the characters and they wanted to know what was going to happen next. But then when you rip that underne from underneath them and, and leave them on a cliffhanger, it's like, ah. Oh. And that, because it could have been a situation of like, oh, that's it? Okay. Yeah. And people are satisfied. Okay, yeah. that's the end of the story. But when you have people like wanting to know what happens next, that's what you want. And I feel like that kind of left us in a really good place. So I was happy in that respect. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things like, obviously, with grads, like I was very impressed with the quality of the films uh, that were made despite yeah. everything that we went through um, considering we were all on student budgets and, and all that sort of thing so I was very impressed and I'm, I'm glad that we got through it all in the end um, but yeah yeah awesome now let's move on to your experience working on Elvis so what was the actual role and what were your um, duties and responsibilities uh, in that project because obviously working with Baz Luhrmann and yeah. having people like the, the of the likes of Tom Hanks on set um, I assume it's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, it was it was pretty wild. I was a um, props manufacturer runner. Um, so basically, it's kind of like a subsection of the art department. Uh, when you work on a big feature, and for Elvis, we were split up into lots of different kind of subcategories amongst arts. So you have your art department itself, which is the big one. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have set decorating, which is set deck. Props, and props manufacturer, which is where I was. And uh, then you have the greens who kind of dress, you know, all the landscaping of, you know, the sets outdoors and whatnot. Uh, then you have, we had soft furnishings, which was, you know, refining old furniture. And, um, and then there was, there was one, a practical lighting is another one uh, that we have. And, um, and scenic, which is paint. So they paint all the big set pieces. So, yeah, our department was uh, it's about 20 people. It was a, a smaller department. It was really sort of tight-knit group. And it was it was awesome, like really, really fun. And basically, you know, we were sort of, our department was in charge of kind of manufacturing, um, you know, set pieces that you couldn't just buy at a store. Um, and we're also refurnishing, you know, old vintage furniture and, you know, 
yeah, going back to making things that you just couldn't, you know, because Baz has these crazy, and Baz and Catherine Martin, his wife, just has have these crazy, crazy ideas. And, you know, you can't just go into an antique store and say, hey, I'll get that. You know, they're really niche things like, you know, making Elvis's gun or Tom Hanks, he has all these canes in the film and they were all just custom made uh, pokey machines and everything like that was just, yeah, that was what our department was was in charge of. And it was my job to kind of make sure, I think because we were such a small department uh, amongst this massive film, I was a runner as well as an assistant, so to speak. Um, but yeah, you know, I was in charge of my own credit card and every week you'd have to uh, reconcile your credit card uh, payments with accounts. Um, I, you know, had to make sure um, everyone in the workshop who was there was, you know, getting the stock and supplies that they needed to make the props for the film and, and yeah, just a bunch of different other things. Um, yeah. <laughs> that sounds really exciting. I can imagine that. It's funny how you mentioned how there was like 20 people working in your team. and That was our entire. Yeah. But like that <laughs> small team is a very small cog in a very huge operation. And that's one of the things I find funny is like when people ask, oh, you know, what do you want to do in the movie making industry? It's like just watch the credits of any film and just see how many people work on a film. Like you play a very small but important role in the creation of this film and, you know, you'll just be one of those little names in the credits but yeah. what you do is so important in order to make sure that this um, train is moving along the train tracks very smoothly. Yeah, my, my head of department, he was, he was awesome. And, you know, when I f was first starting, was meeting people, um, I'd always introduce myself. Oh, hi, I'm James. I'm just the runner. And, yeah, he sort of pulled me aside and he said, hey, don't, like, stop saying you're just the runner. He said, you know, without runners, he said, people in a workshop don't get supplies to make the props. In turn, there's no props for the film. Baz can't make his film. And I said, hey, hey, don't put that pressure on me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like that kind of pressure. But, um, yeah, I, I felt, you know, it was a fantastic stepping stone because you know like I said I'd worked on a few small projects but they were only you know one two day things that I was on whereas this one I worked on Elvis for seven months and um yeah it was down at the cold coast that it was being filmed right yeah at the village roadshow studios the yeah the, the whole film was was done there um there were only a few external locations that they shot at uh, for for some of the sets but besides that everything was shot um, at the studios, which I think is great for, you know, Australia and local businesses around the area mm -hmm. and whatnot. And, um, and the great thing about Baz as well is that he really pushed for this film to be made in Australia. I mean, all his films are made in Australia, but it's purely because he just wants to create local jobs. That's fantastic. Yeah. I really respect that because that's one of the big things is that in Australia, our film industry is, is quite small and obviously because we're so um, at the will of Screen Queensland and Screen Australia, these government bodies that kind of dictate the funding for a lot of our projects, as a result, we just don't get a lot of stuff made here. Yeah. But the flip side of that is that a lot of Hollywood and foreign stuff comes to Australia to film here because um, it's a bit cheaper to film here and stuff. And obviously we have the facilities and, and you know, the, the, the crew and stuff. So it's one of those tricky things of like, you know, obviously here in Australia, we'd love to be making great content and competing on the on the same level as, you know, the UK and the US, um, but we just don't have the, the budget for it. In saying that, 
um, Baz Luhrmann doing that, I think is really admirable and I appreciate him doing that. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's odd because it's such an American film. I mean, Elvis is this American icon and, you know, the, the whole story is kind of a reflection on America. So it's very odd that it's kind of filmed in Australia. But, um, yeah, it's also really when great. When you're watching the movie, you'll never know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, some of the, the sets that you, you know, look at the monitor and see just, you know, it's so odd that, oh, that was just filmed on Soundstage 9 or whatever. You know, it's a very surreal experience. Yeah, it's pretty so. exciting. Because um, you had met Baz Luhrmann before your yeah. uh, experience on <laughs> on Elvis, so um, what was it like having met him previously to then be on the same set working with him? Because I assume you would have interacted with him briefly whilst you were working on the project, correct? Yeah, yeah, a few times, like very, very briefly. Mm. Um, so what was it like seeing him in action and watching that sort of process um, unfold? He's a psychopath. <laughs> He's in a good way. Um, you know, I think I, I really, really admire Baz Luhrmann, but I think, you know, keeping it, they say never meet your heroes. And I, I think, you know, never work with your heroes. So the brief encounters that I had with him were enough, I think, um, for me to still respect him. Um, That's but, fair. But no, he's, yeah, he's, I think, you know, when you watch his films, to me anyway, like Romeo and Juliet and even Moulin Rouge, to me they feel like kind of experimental pieces. Um, I feel like Baz maybe, you know, he didn't, he was still figuring out his style of being wacky and crazy. Whereas Gatsby, I think he knew exactly what he was doing. And the same with Elvis. I think he had a very, very clear vision of what he was doing. And yeah, but, you know, he's still as, as crazy and mental and he's just, he's so fast paced on set and, you know, people can't keep up with him. And yeah, his demands are just uh, insane. So I'll say when you get to a position like that, you definitely need to make sure that you're um, got a plan in action and that you're fulfilling every step of the way so that you can quickly and efficiently move throughout the process because so many people can take their time and then before you know it the time is gone and that's sure. when you get into into trouble because then you haven't got what you need done and then that just makes the post-production phase so much more complicated so yeah mm. and i mean because he's a bit of a maniac at least he has something to show for it like he is very very good at what he does and he knows what he's talking about so yeah and i, I think for someone who was directing a student film and um, who went through uni really loving the whole um, the process of being the director to actually see a, an industry professional up on stage talking to the actors and communicating it was really really um, really inspiring I guess um, you could say and just very educational in a way so would that be the one thing that you took away from the experience is that or was there anything else that really um, stood out to you throughout your time I don't know I just you know it was such a, a crazy film because you know people that know me well i'm a big sucker for old nostalgia particularly sort of post world war ii sort of 50s and 60s and this film was you know the 50s to the 70s you know documenting 30 decades of elvis's life and a bit of his childhood as well and um you know um i'm a fan of baz which was another plus and um I, i'd also been a fan of elvis himself so i think just the whole experience and Every day was kind of pinch yourself moment for me, you know, walking on these just magnificent sets. I mean, it's everything you could imagine a, a Baz Elvis film would be. It's just 
massive fever dream. <laughs> That's so sick. I'm so happy for you, man. Do Thank we ever do we have a release date for this film yet? I think it's uh, June next year. So June next year. I'm very I'm super excited for it because I'm not super familiar with Elvis and his um, backstory and the um, the what the steps he had to take in order to get to one of the most famous musicians on the planet. So with the likes of the Queen movie that came out recently and the uh, Elton John one, we've had a lot of really cool um, musical um, biopics on these great musicians. So to add this to the list, I'm I'm very excited and I'm really looking forward to seeing how it all unfolds. So. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of you know Elvis has had. Um, biopics made about him you know I think he said three already but I think this film is the sort of definitive version or depiction of yeah the big budget one yeah yeah and I I think you know it's a Baz film it's you're either gonna love it or or hate it I don't think there's sort of an in-between um but yeah it's it's very very different to what people will think. I can't say it too much because Warner Brothers will come chasing me. <laughs> <laughs> you, I, I will, I'm excited to see um, how the uh, main uh, actor that's playing Elvis, what's his name again? I forgot. Austin Butler. He's, yeah, I'm really excited to see how he how he does it. He's so good. Yeah, well, you know, at the, we've yeah, seen a bit of footage of him and he's just Because Elvis fantastic. is one of those strange people where you get a lot of Elvis impersonators and a lot of people like to like pretend to be Elvis, especially like in Las Vegas and whatnot. So to see, I can imagine that casting process would have been fascinating um, to find the right person. But I'll say I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, I can't wait until, you know, next year when all the Elvis songs become... Me know, too. Yeah, come back into the site, guys, and uh, start hearing him on the radio and on the on the top charts. So. That's it. That's it. Um, now, the next film that you have worked on is the film being directed by Ron Howard called Thirteen Lies. Um, do you want to just tell me a bit about the process of transitioning from Elvis, which you had worked on for several months, to then smoothly transition into the next project and next um, bit of work in your career? Yeah. So I finished Elvis on a Friday, and then on a mon- the following Monday, I started on Thirteen Lives. So I was straight into it. There was no sort of break, and yeah, it was it was a lot different because obviously the story was completely different. It wasn't this, you know. Were you doing the same role? Um, very similar. I was in set deck, which is set decorating and mm-hmm. props. So, okay. Um, yeah, kind of similar, but I think... Working with similar people as well or... Yeah, similar people. Awesome. Similar people jumped over from Elvis. and um, But yeah, so set decorating and props, they're a much bigger department than props manufacturer were. So yeah, there was a lot more pressure, I felt, and it was a lot more... It was a... It was... Uh, a crazy crazy experience and there was a yeah there were two runners in the department um it was just very very busy all the time and um yeah but it was interesting because elvis is you know it's this glamorous it's baz's interpretation of this icon and you know you're walking the streets of las vegas whereas now you know we were in the thick, disgusting mud of Thailand and we're in, you know, gum boots and slipping in mud and, yeah, we were literally, we were down at um, Madraba, which is down past the Gold Coast and, um, yeah, we were in the full rain and cold and it was very, very, it wasn't as cushy <laughs> as Elvis, let's just say, and um, uh, yesterday was actually the last day of, of shoot, so um, now it's just the pack-up process, but... Um, yeah, it's very, very different experience, and the whole story is a completely different. It's interesting because they're two, they're two stories that are you know taken from real life, 
but told in a completely different yeah, way. Yeah, what is the story of 13 Lies? Isn't it based off a, a true event? Like, yes. Because I remember hearing about it ages ago and I've forgotten, so It was a, it um, a Thai soccer team and they, they ventured into these caves um, after a game of soccer and, um, yeah, got trapped in this cave system and they were trying to get out, but um, they had... Um, the rain hit in Thailand and flooded them in. Oh, okay. And they were just banked up in in pitch black in what they called them chambers. So they were in the furthest chamber, in chamber nine, and they were stuck there for 18 days. Damn. Yeah. And um, it's an amazing, I mean, look, <laughs> you can read what happens at the end of the film, basically. You just have to read the story. Um, but yeah, it was the most amazing rescue. Um, and successful rescue as well, mm. and um, so yeah, it was it was really really interesting to be part of the film because the whole process of rescuing them was so complex. I can imagine, and that's one of the things I find interesting when filmmakers take a true story and bring it into a a, a movie setting is that obviously you want to try and dramatize it and, and, and add a fictional element, and also take the important stuff and put it into that two-hour time frame because obviously this would have obviously taken place over, like you said, a long time. Yep. So to condense that into a two-hour digestible size, I can imagine it's very tricky, but I can imagine as a director or a writer, it would be one of the exciting challenges of taking a dramatic story like this and then you know, bringing that to the screen for an audience to, to really enjoy. Because like I've watched films that you know obviously are inspired by um, – True events. Uh, the recent example that I watched was uh, Deepwater Horizon, okay. which was um, the movie that um, depicted the events that happened uh, when there was that big BP oil spill um, somewhere in the ocean near America or whatnot. Yep. And uh, that was a um, fascinating movie because um, obviously it detailed that experience so well and all the mistakes that led up to it. Um, and then, I don't know, Mark Wahlberg. It's a, it's a movie with Mark Wahlberg, but, <laughs> yep. you know. Um, Anyway, so yeah, I think when when filmmakers take um, concepts that are taken from the real world and then put their own um, movie spin on it, I think is always interesting. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So hopefully Ron Howard hits it out of the park. But you know, Ron Howard's again one of those filmmakers where he has a, he a track record. He usually always does a good job. Yeah. yeah, and he definitely takes this to a very emotional, um, yeah, part of a very emotional um, part of the story, and uh, you know, it's a very kind of grounded look at it whereas you know Elvis was a very over the top of course yeah <laughs> look at him but yeah Ron Howard yeah takes down a notch and yeah it's a very very sad story actually um, you know it had a great outcome but just the whole process of getting them out is, is very sad and very tense as well I mm. think I think the film's gonna be really really good yeah. mm. and it's and it's got a really really great cast attached to it as well sweet now I know a lot of these Hollywood projects are coming to Australia but the reality is it is a still a Hollywood film so I'm curious to ask you what do you think it's like working within the Hollywood system and what are the things that really stood out to you when you were in there that was like wow and then you had to kind of adjust your thought process. Was it? Yeah. Well, I think it's kind of finding your place in the hierarchy because there is a hierarchy in film. And I mean, any industry, there's always a hierarchy, but I think it's more prevalent in film. Yeah. It's and very obvious. And to, to quickly you know, add on to that, the, the film industry is very much so, like you said, there's a hierarchy. And if you want to get to where you want to be, it's very much you have to climb that ladder. 
And I'm interested to hear your perspective on this actually because um, a lot of people in film school especially you know, have all these aspirations of, oh, I want to be a director or I want to be a producer or yeah. you know, I want to be an editor. But those positions that people often aspire towards are often the top of the hierarchy. They're normally the top dogs of that area within that sort of industry. And this is why I don't like film school is <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you just, the teachers just say, all right, get into a group and uh, choose, you know, who's going to be director and who's going to be the producer. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. It never works like that. And, you know, oh, who's going to be your DOP? Yeah, you just choose, just choose in amongst the group. It doesn't work like that. And, um, you know, it's years and years of, uh, you know, gaining that kind of, um, gaining that position. And, you know, they don't teach you the sort of steps you need to take if you really do want to pursue that. Yeah, because you really do have to. If you want to get to where you want to be in life, you have to do... The, all those assistant roles, you know, all the sort of stuff that where you do the grunt work in order to one day climb that ladder to get where you want to be. And do you think that is the case? Is that it's really much so if you want to be top top of the line that you have to like kind of go through that that sort of process? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, a luck luck has a lot of a lot of play in it as well. You just sort of have to be lucky. Um, but yeah, I mean, I couldn't really tell you because I don't even know how you would get to that position and again it just depends what you want to do Mm. and I think what is good though about working on these two big features is that you realize there are so many more roles that are achievable I think a lot of people finish film school saying oh you know how how am I going to be a director now how am I going to produce what I want so well no and you know or how am I going to be a production designer well no you know you can start out as a runner in props you know and then you can move up to being an assistant uh, in set decorating or you know there are on set um, you know on set uh, props uh, there are set dresses there's what's called swing gang where it's sort of coming in and building up the sets and taking them down um, yeah there's all sorts of position as graphic artists there's you know art um, as supervising art designers and directors and there's so many positions which I think is reassuring but also at the same time it's maybe too much where Mm. you're just like all right now i really don't know what i want to do yeah you definitely need a small army in order to make a film and that's one of the things i find interesting is that yeah a lot of people have their sights set on a specific role and say all right that's what i want to do but like you just said you know there's so many other roles that are within that same field that you could do that would be still really productive and might be really engaging for you but yeah. again I, everyone's got their own sort of system and, and plans and, and ways they uh, yeah you know go through it so and things will change so quickly i mean when i was in film school god i hate to say it but i was that person that you know i want to be writing director so and many um, people are dude it, you're yeah. not alone so i yeah. definitely was when i first came to film school for sure and my horizons were just broadened massively so yeah and i, I realized that you know, though I think, you know, it's fun doing it on a student film level with your friends. I think in the real world, maybe I don't want to do that. And I, I thought, you know, a way to kind of get to that stage would be to go through the AD department, which is assistant directing. And I don't know, being being on set, it's not a very nice place to be. Um, yeah, being in the art department, you're kind of away from all that. And I quite like being in the art department. And now my focus has shifted, you know, I would like to stay in the art department as opposed to going through the AD world. Um, Cause bleep this, fuck that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And you know, that's just from my experience. Some people love it some people love the chaos and love being 
talked down to and <laughs> I don't know, just my experience, it's it can be very toxic and very stressful for no reason. Um, you know, every job in film is stressful, but yeah, I think it's just different levels of stress. No, you're 100% right. And I've heard stories from not only you, but from a few different people of people that work on set and inside that Hollywood landscape. And I feel like, yes, you know, it's a sad reality, but you know, the reality is people are in these positions of power and they need to get a job done. And sometimes people have to get the brunt force of that, which is not ideal. And I think it's interesting when you work on a um, student film, when you're working with your friends and you're working on a project together and you're all having fun bringing this thing to life. But when you're in a professional environment, you're not working with friends, you're working with colleagues. Yep. And that can sometimes, um, yeah, it's it's a different uh, dynamic working with that sort of with those sort of people so yeah I, I've definitely heard those sort of stories before and to me that's one of the reasons why I've abandoned or I should say p- put on pause my pursuit um, of a career in the movie making industry because um, I have you know the things that I specialized in in uni and the things that I would like to do within movie making you know like we just previously discussed I can't easily get into straight away yep. so it's one of those things like I don't want to go through the process of trying to climb that ladder to maybe one day make it. You okay. know what I mean? So, but then again, I'm very fortunate. I'm, I'm in a position where I love sport and I love filmmaking. So I'm combining those two and doing that as my career now. Like I work in sport broadcasting as a camera operator and I'm yeah very grateful to have already slid straight into where I want to be and I'm already working at a few different companies doing exactly where I want to be what I want to do so uh, I'm again one of those rare cases of I've kind of I'm finishing up uni and I'm already working in industry exactly where I want to be so um, and again that might change oh yeah you you know five years down the track you might hey I want to move back in the film Mm. which I think is good working in the arts you kind of have that flexibility yes flexibility is huge yeah where you can you know I mean you have to reach a kind of level where you can you know, say, hey, I'd like to do this role now and put the feelers out and whatnot. Um, I think when you're starting, you can kind of just take what you can get. Um, but I think, yeah, you can get to a level where you can say, hey, maybe maybe I don't want to be a runner anymore. Maybe I don't want to be a camera operator, whatever it might be. But Because mm, that's a huge thing is that I feel like so many people either come out of high school or they come out of uni and then they get stuck in a job where it's working five days a week, nine to five, And then that's what they do for the next 40, 50 years of their life. Yeah. And I feel like we're in a strange position where we work in an industry where it's like the job security isn't great. Yeah, it's awful. um, (laughs) But at the same time, you have the flexibility to be like, all right, I have an interest in this and I want to pursue that and I'm going to do that and and make my my living doing that. And uh, some people have great success doing it. Some people don't. I know the acting community is obviously that's the worst job security you can have. It's a tough gig, yeah. Yeah, so it's, again... Everyone has their own drive in life and as long as you're doing something that you enjoy and that is not only productive for yourself but productive for society, I think that's what's most important. Definitely. I mean, some people are, you know, they're happy working that nine-to-five job, which I can respect and I can see, you know, I I think I'm one of those people who wouldn't be too fussed doing that. I quite like job security. I don't know why I want to enter this industry then. Um, But, you know, I think while I'm young, I just want to, work on as many films as I can and I'm quite happy being a runner to be honest there's a lot of perks and I get to see a lot of stuff that you know people in the production office they don't get to see they don't get to see it's you know people in production office 
you know, the art coordinators and people like that, they're just office jobs, really. And, you know, it's a shame they don't get to go out on location and see the sets, whereas, you know, runners, yeah, they get to see all of it, you know, and the occasional coffee run, which I don't mind. <laughs> I quite of like. Course, I yeah. quite like. So, yeah. Well, I think we're both in agreement and everything that you've said thus far is going to lead again and give me more evidence toward this statement. I've said it so many times, but it's, it's who you know, not what you know. And if you can make the right connections and meet the right people and, and make a good impression, it's so much more beneficial because you can be an expert in script writing or yep. an expert in sound design. But if you don't make those connections and meet the right people, and it's not going to be beneficial for you. And I, th- I think you're a good example of making good impressions on people within industry, and that has set you up quite well. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, when I was on Elvis, one of the mold makers, his mum was a coordinator on 13 Lives and said, hey, they're looking for a runner. I'll give you yeah it's it's that's how it works man it's just it's one of those things like if you can make the right connections it's just going to bounce from project to project and that's where you get a sense of community uh sorry a sense of consistency and um again it's just one of those things like again once you've made it it makes uh yeah once you've made it inside the room you know once you've got past that first door um things open up for you but so many people close themselves off and don't allow that opportunity to get past that first door and then that's when they stagnate and then that's when their careers flop. For so, sure, yeah. So, yeah, again, congratulations on, on making it. <laughs> Thank you, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, now, something else I want to talk to you about, and this is a very hot button and slightly controversial topic. Um, oh, no. Whilst <laughs> we're on the, on the uh, subject of Hollywood, um, I would like to get your opinions on cancel culture and all that at the moment. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> did, so, not, did not know the conversation was yeah. going. Yeah. So what's your opinions on that sort of side of um, the film industry and all the cultural shifts that we're going through at the moment? Well, I mean... I don't know. It depends what you kind of look at as cancel culture, as in, you know, what's your kind of... Well, I'll say I think it's interesting because so many people have these beliefs where it's like, um, all right, we've got to live our lives in this way and we can only have say these things and we can have these opinions. And I'm obviously a, a big, uh, big proponent of free, free, freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think within this modern world, especially if you're in the public landscape, um, then you are often criticized for everything that you do. And I think it's interesting, and I I don't know um, what the trajectory of it will be in the long term. So that's why I'm curious to see what you say about, like, um, how some people are often um, lose their jobs for things that they've said on social media and the way that they conduct themselves outside of the workplace. And uh, obviously, as someone who's worked in um, the Hollywood system, um, what are your thoughts on, on that sort of idea? Well, yeah, if I can be honest, people are disgustingly inappropriate on set, but they say it, you know, nothing's meant to be taken to heart. Of course, you know, yeah. They're just, and I'm the type of person, maybe similar to you, I, I don't take things to heart. And, you know, if people, I, I'm kind of aware if, you know, someone is joking and there are points where people can take it too far. And, um, yeah, a lot of people in the workshop, they take it too far. But, you know, it's nothing of a level where I would deem, you know, hey, 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 I need to report this. You know, it was all just said in good fun and and uh, in good faith, I guess. But, mm. you know, it, yeah, it just depends who's there. I, I think if, um, you know, if there were any other, I know a lot of people in our cohort were very woke. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I think if they were in that position working in a workshop with you know these really inappropriate people you know they would they would not like that whereas i don't care i i 
<laughs> kind of I take it on the chin, move on. Yeah, you just sort of sit there, you don't, you know, respond to anything like that, but I was never ever offended by anything and same with 13 lives, you know. Everyone's wildly inappropriate, but it's Well, that's the funny thing is that I feel like sometimes people make jokes and then people take it personally. And it's yep. like you don't understand the separation of, you know, the intention of what has just been said. And I feel like intent is so important because so many people, especially like the comedian, um, you know, industry is like really going through this at the moment where, uh, you know, a lot of people are getting attacked online and stuff for, you know, jokes that they've said. But their job is specifically to elicit laughter. And sometimes they'll say some fucked up things. Yep. Sometimes it'll be funny. Sometimes it won't. But when we go through this process of trying to cancel people and make them lose their jobs and so they, they lose venues and uh, I guess keeping it within the movie related world, um, how actors lose their jobs and, and all that sort of thing. I just think we're on a very um, we're on a tightrope um, society uh, societal societally if that's a word uh, at the yeah. moment and our culture is going through a revolution at the moment and I feel like a lot of good things will come out of it but I feel like at the at the end of the day if that pendulum you know swifts too far it's just going to come back even harder the other way For and sure, I feel yeah. like that's going to be a tricky thing especially because um, there are instances where people, you know, say things that are not fireable offences and yet they get a, a social media campaign behind them and there's a cancel this person. Like I look to examples like James Gunn, right? Mm-hmm. How um, several years ago he made uh, a tweet saying something, you know, related to like some child pornography joke or whatnot. Anyway, a joke in bad faith, but a joke nonetheless. Anyway, he lost his job on Guardians of the Galaxy 3 because of the people that were coming after him for that. Um, he then obviously got his job back because of the outpouring of the response in his defense. Um, we look at recent examples like Gina Carano and the Mandalorian, um, <laughs> who said some arguably silly things, but regardless, you know, she has the right to say those things. Anyway, she lost her job on the Mandalorian. So it's just stuff like that. I think it's interesting because I'm obviously not a big fan of the woke um, uh, politics that is going on in our current society. And the thing that I keep saying to people, especially within the film world, is that so many people in these positions of power, and I think you'll agree with this, is that so many people in these positions of power are old white people, right? But eventually, once all these old people die out, (laughs) it's going to be our generation that comes through and take over those positions of power. So I think we're... Which is scary. Well, yeah, but like I think it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how the landscape unfolds over the next couple decades because, you know, once our generation gets into those positions of power, then a lot of these things that we want to happen, like these, you know, um, societal changes that we want to see happen where we, you know, have equality um, of opportunity and everything, I think that's when those things will happen. Um, But the thing is everyone wants instant responses and, and instant change. But that's just not how humans work. We just we we're we're a very slow moving um, society, and oftentimes we're in a, a landscape where it's like we're in a big boat, and the boat's slowly turning, but the boat's not turning quick enough for some yeah. people. And uh, I'm of the opinion that I think we just need a bit of patience, and for these sure. social changes will happen eventually. And I think yeah, our generation is kind of a mixed bunch. I think we're a lot more self aware of what's going on. In a sense, you know, we kind of think, hey, you know. Sexism or racism is actually a bad thing. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Whereas in saying that, I think our generation can be a bit silly in terms of, you know, I think, you know, what's PC and and whatnot. But, yeah, I mean, I don't really have too much to say 
I'm just <laughs> see how it goes really mm. and I, I don't really think too much about that to be honest but well that's probably a positive mindset to have because so many people just get soaked in that social media bubble and they think that what is said online is often the consensus of what everyone thinks and I, I just that is not the case at all and I, I find this yeah, interesting yeah. with a lot of politics that's going on at the moment is that you often hear from the far right and the far left and you hear these arguments and, and, and stones are thrown across at people and stuff but I feel like the majority of people are in the middle and we see both sides yeah. but because we're the vocal minority our story isn't told in, in the media so I don't know. It's it's a tricky situation, and I feel like Hollywood is in a very weird state with regards to all the things that has happened to certain individuals who de- you know deserved you know um, some criminal action and stuff like the likes of Harvey Weinstein and all that. Um, but you know, at the same stage, you know, while some people deserve to be taken down, some people don't. So that's why I was just a bit curious to hear what your thoughts were on on all this stuff that's been happening in the in the media recently. So for sure, yeah. Mm. But within um, the future or within your foreseeable future, what are your aspirations and hopes um, within the film industry? Um, do you yeah. want to continue doing what you're doing with the projects that you've done thus far um, or did you want to take a new direction? Yeah, I mean, really, I'm just happy to be working in the industry that I've been working towards. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, I'm happy running around, to be honest. Um, I don't really have a plan of what's going to happen. I feel like I'm at a level where I know enough people that I feel comfortable that I can, you know, get something yeah, that's great. from them in, in a way, you know, without being cocky or blowing smoke up my ass or anything. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to stay in the art department. I think it's uh, I think it's the most rewarding because you can actually see your work on the screen and, you know, looking at the footage on Elvis, it's, oh, hey, I, I remember delivering that to set when it was so urgent. Or, you know, I remember blah, 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 whatever it could be. Whereas, you know, if you work in a sort of office based job or even as an AD, you're contributing a lot to the film, but your work itself is not really seen, um, you know, in terms of visually, I guess you could say. And I think that that's why art is very rewarding and is why I'd like to stay in it. Um, where in art? I don't know. I, I'd like to get a little bit more involvement on set I think um, I know I said how much I hate being on set, but I still think to an extent it could be fun, and it depends where amongst the set you are. You know, if you're away from the AD department, if you're away from the grips or whatever, I think that's fine. You know, if you're in art on set, that can be fine. No matter where you go, it's gonna be stressful. Can't avoid that. But really, I'm just you know, I think harking back to job security in this industry. Um, one good bit of advice that I got while I was on Elvis, they said, you know, if you're worried about job security, you probably shouldn't be in the film industry, which I think is great, um, you know, to an extent. <laughs> you know, he just said, you know, you've got to love what you're doing. You've got to love this industry and you've got to be willing to, you know, not work for a month, six months, who knows. Um, so, yeah, I'm just kind of taking it one step at a time seeing where I go and um, just very grateful that I'm working on films, to be honest. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'll say you've already mentioned a little bit of advice that you got from someone else. Do you have any advice after the, the year and a half that you've been working in industry? Don't, don't join a film. <laughs> that is my advice. No, <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I wouldn't really have advice. I would say just don't stress. Don't stress. You know, 
it's a very stressful environment and especially know, when there's so much at stake yeah yeah i think some people enjoy stress and work really well from that but i don't and uh, i found that on elvis when i was getting stressed out i would get flustered and i would make a lot more mistakes than i would have um or should have i should say um whereas 13 lives having worked for seven months on elvis having learned so much 13 lives it's probably more stressful than Elvis, but because I just learned to manage it a lot better, you know, I didn't feel a sense of, you know, sweat dripping, the literal sweat dripping down from my head on, you know, I didn't feel like my job would, was on the line or anything because I was very calm and, and with that, you know, you just work efficiently and without getting stressed, I wasn't making mistakes and things were getting done and it all worked out in the end. And I think if people just get stressed too much, stress is fucking awful. Yeah, I know. You know? And yeah, so I would just say, you know, take it well, easy. Well, I'll say take, you just said you don't easy. have any advice. Well, I would, I would say that's very good advice. Remaining calm, under pressure, and learning to go with the punches. And, you know, it doesn't how, matter how many times you get hit. It's, what matters is that you get up every time. For so. sure, Definitely. James, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a fantastic conversation. No, very not, insightful. Not podcast, Mr. Caleb's show. Okay. <laughs> show. I will take that on board and think about it. But yes, thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming on. I know it's been a long time coming, so no. I, I'm, I'm very grateful and I've had a lot of fun. So thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, buddy. I've enjoyed it. That's it. See you later, everyone.